Throughout this chapter, Paul has been proving that justification and the Holy Spirit come by faith and not by works. First, he argued from experience, the experience the Galatians had when they received the Holy Spirit. Next, he argued from scripture, the biblical record about Abraham, the man of faith. But when it comes to making a theological point, it always helps to have a good illustration. So next, Paul takes a human example. According to standard legal practice, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The covenant is permanent. By covenant, Paul refers instead to a covenant for an inheritance, what today might be called a last will and testament. A will is not a contract. It does not set terms what various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do. A last will and testament is a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate on someone else. It is a grant rather than a bargain. The kind of human covenant Paul has in mind is also irrevocable. Once it is signed, sealed, and delivered, it cannot be changed. There is no way to set it aside or add to it. It cannot be abrogated or annulled. It cannot be amended or adjusted. It is legally binding exactly as it stands. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez begins his exposition of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I read a uh, story not too long ago in which a woman had died and had left her property to a Christian university or at least so it seemed. According to the precise terms of her will, all her worldly goods were bequeathed to a particular educational institution. The women's children, who lived on the other side of the country, were obviously quite surprised to discover that they had essentially been left out of her will. They were as the story goes, outraged at the college because they accused the college of taking advantage of their mother in this way. So the children obviously decided to contest the will uh, in a court of law. They tried to claim that their mother's uh, bequest applied only to personal effects and not to uh, the real estate. But at the end of Uh, the case, the children lost uh, and lost any opportunity of, of gaining an inheritance. There was nothing they could do in terms of the will. Why? Because as far as the law was concerned, the matter had been settled the moment the old woman died. Now, why do I tell you that story? And what does that have to do with Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18? Well, this is exactly the kind of legal situation that Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. Throughout this 
chapter. He has been proving that justification and the Holy Spirit come by faith, not by works. If you recall, he first argued from experience, the experience that the Galatians had when they received the Holy Spirit. We covered that when we looked at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The second argument he makes is from Scripture. And he says that the biblical record about Abraham, the man of faith, helps make the point that he's been arguing. And we saw that when we covered Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. But when it comes to making the theological point, it always helps to have a good illustration. And here's where we find ourselves right now. So next, Paul takes, look at the very first part of verse 15. He says, to give what? A human example. His illustration comes from the world of Judas prudence. And according to the standard legal practice, look at the rest of verse 15, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There's two things that Paul is telling us here. One, the covenant is what? Permanent. And by covenant, Paul does not have in mind a legal contract for a business transaction. He refers to a covenant for an inheritance. Today we might call that what? A will and testament. And that would be actually a better translation for this particular passage because that's what he's talking about. A will is not a contract. Why do we say that? A will does not set terms that various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, what is a will? It is a document that simply declares what one party intends to do. So a last will and testament is a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate to someone else. It's a grant rather than a bargain. And number two, so first we said the covenant is permanent. Second, the kind of human covenant Paul has in mind here is also irrevocable. Now think about the implications of what we're saying to the point he's, the greater point that he's making here regarding justification. It is irrevocable. In other words, once it has been signed, once it has been uh, sealed, once it has been delivered, it cannot be changed. Again, think of the implication to the point he's making regarding justification. There is no way to set aside or to add to it. It cannot be abrogated or annulled in any way. It cannot be amended or adjusted. It is legally binding just as it stands. Now, there, there's a debate among uh, scholars as to which legal system Paul may have had in mind when he was, uh, spoke about this human covenant. There are three that he could have had in mind. Roman law, for example, very much like the English law, and in fact, very much like the law as we practice it in, in America. The Roman law or Roman covenants could be annulled or added to. A man could tear up his will and testament and write a whole new one if he wanted to at any time. Or he could add a codicil uh, to change the terms of the original will. So among the Romans, it was only when the man actually died that his testament could no longer be altered. That's how we do it in the States. I can write up a will and testament 
and change it at will at any point prior to my death. But once I die, it is what it is. Now, if Paul was thinking in terms of Roman law, this is what he meant by ratify. A last will and testament was permanently settled at death. Some argue that he may have had Greek law in mind when he was giving this example, which is slightly different from Roman law. According to the Greeks, a will could not be repealed or revoked. It could not even be modified. In other words, once an individual, once a will had been properly registered and deposited at a public record office, that Greek testament could never be altered, even by the person who originally wrote it. This practice would fit Paul's point exactly. Once the covenant was made, it was irrevocable. Think about the implications of that. Once God makes this covenant, though he lives at that point, it's irrevocable. It is permanent. That would fit Greek law, if that's what Paul had in mind here. And third, perhaps the apostle was thinking in terms of Jewish inheritance law. The Jews had a special procedure for making an irrevocable testament prior to dying, and we actually have a very good example of this. In the story Jesus told of the prodigal son, you remember Luke 15, 11, and 12 says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The younger son asks for his inheritance before his father died. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what legal system Paul had in mind. Because in all legal systems, there are re there's a point that you reach that you can't now annul or modify or change the testament, the will, the covenant. So it really doesn't make any difference which legal system. Think about this. Because he says at the beginning of verse 15, to give you a human example, even with a man-made covenant, the implication that Paul is making here is that if this is true at the human level, if at the human level we write a testament, a will and testament, at which at some point it is irrevocable and permanent, how much more in the divine realm? If this is true at the human level, it is all that more true when it comes to the, God, uh, the, the covenant God established through Abraham. I like the way the 84 NIV renders verse 15. It says, Just as no one can set aside a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Paul's argument is from lesser at the human level to greater. What holds true in the human court has even greater force in the courtroom of God. So the analogy of a last will and testament is a good one because it has several points of comparison with the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, consider the conditions of that arrangement, which the scripture repeatedly calls a covenant. And since it was a covenant, Paul was able to compare it to the covenants of his day. And as far as covenants go, what God proposed to Abraham was more like a testament. It was not a contract. And here's the, the important piece, because we, we say that a, a will and testament is not a contract. It was not a contract between relative equals. In fact, the contrary is true. It contains a long list of things God promised to grant as his legacy to Abraham. Paul's argument here is, listen, the Abrahamic covenant was properly established. And in those days, legal agreements were not based. Keep your place here in Galatians and, and go to uh, Genesis 15 for a moment. But, and while you're getting there, I'll, I'll just say this. In those 
days, legal agreements were not based on handshake or even on a piece of paper. Instead, they were sealed in blood by a covenant ceremony. Look at chapter 15. I'm going to look at verses 9 and 10 first. Look at what he says. He, a reference to God, he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Then go to uh, verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The animals were sacrificed, and God passes between them, thus validating his covenant in a legally binding way. And now this covenant that he makes, though he lives, is permanent and irrevocable. Paul's point is that what God covenanted to do for Abraham that night will remain in force for how long? Forever. Forever. One uh, New Testament scholar says, Paul regards the promise to Abraham as a divinely ratified settlement or covenant and argues from its considerable priority to the law that its provisions cannot be made null and void by the later introduction of the law, which is precisely what the Judaizers were attempting to do, and which is precisely what false teachers do today, though it may not be the law of Moses that they're attempting to introduce or to mix with the gospel. The principle is still exactly the same. One cannot, Paul says, adjust the terms of a human testament, much less the divine one. Therefore, once God duly established his covenant, it could never be annulled. It could never be changed. It was permanent. So we see here in, 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 in verse 15 the permanence of the covenant. What we're going to do when we start looking at verses 16 through 18, we will start considering the party of the covenant, and we will also consider the promise of the covenant. And we will not only look at the text to understand what it is that Paul is saying, but why does it matter to us today? We sometimes, you know, read through these passages of Scripture, or sometimes we even, I'll stand up here and present the text and sort of give an exposition. Unless we get what it means to us today, what difference will it make, right? Why is it important for Paul to have included this in in his epistle to the Galatian church? And what responsibility do we have as believers to this text, to the gospel? Has anything changed from when Paul lived and when Paul wrote this to where we are today in terms of our responsibility to make sure that we continue to do that which was left as an example for us by those who lived before us? Again, the issue here, he's not belaboring a point that conservative Christians can afford to have a difference of opinion on. This is an essential. He's talking about how it is man is reconciled to God. And he's very clear in his writings, and Scripture is very clear, that there's only one way to be reconciled to God. The gospel of Christianity is a very exclusive gospel. And that's why Paul argues that any other gospel that people present is a false gospel because it presents a way that God has not prescribed 
in terms of how it is that, that, that we'll reconcile to God. I mean, think about just this morning. We come together to the Lord's Supper, and I appreciate the many comments that are made by, by, by our, the brothers. Why do we come to the Lord's Supper? Why do we have this memorial service? Why do this have this time of remembrance? Because by the grace of God, we've been reconciled to himself by the only means we can, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If we didn't come that way, Paul's point is, you're not saved. You haven't been redeemed. You are not justified. It's the gospel that he's making a case for.